Conversations surrounding trans athlete inclusion are more important than ever. Transphobia is a systemic issue and sport is still not a safe, welcoming or inclusive space for trans and non-gender conforming individuals. Unfortunately, sport has a long way to go. However, we are starting to see organizations update their policies and regulations to become more inclusive to the trans and non-gender conforming communities. For example, did you know that in Skate Canada's most recent trans inclusion policy, they have changed the costume rules for domestic competitions to break down gender barriers? Additionally, Skate Canada has changed the definition for Paris competition to now welcome any two skaters to compete together at many domestic events. Like Skate Canada, organizations are working to update policies that have historically placed restrictions and created barriers for trans and non-gender conforming athlete participation. Today, we are honored to welcome Dr. William Bridell and Ava Bosnia, two leading influencers when it comes to Canadian trans athlete inclusion. Dr. William Bridell, whose pronouns are he and him, completed his PhD at Queen's University in 2011. He is currently the Associate Dean, Academic and Associate Professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary. Dr. Bridell's research interests include investigations of LGBTQ inclusion in sport historically and at present, as well as inclusion and safe sport policy. He has worked with many sport organizations on inclusion-related initiatives, including policy and rule revisions and implementation. He is a co-investigator on two current SSHRC-funded projects, a 2017 SSHRC Insight Development Grant recipient, a 2020 and 2021 Calgary Institute for the Humanities Fellow, and was awarded the 2021 University of Calgary Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Faculty Award. Outside of academia, William has been a group fitness instructor for almost 23 years, listing cycling as a lifelong favorite. Ava Bozniak, whose pronouns are they and them, is an equity, diversity and inclusion practitioner and former competitive soccer player with experience competing in both Canada and the US. Ava currently works in the post-secondary sector as a consultant where they conduct policy reviews for national and provincial sport organizations. Ava approaches their work using an anti-oppression lens and a queer theoretical approach to address and challenge the concept of normalcy and cultures of cis-heteronormativity. Ava also holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Exercise and Health Physiology and a Master's of Science degree in Sociocultural Aspects of Sport and Physical Activity from the University of Calgary. Their graduate research focused on the lived experiences of trans and gender non-conforming persons in recreational sport and physical activity environments. Ava's hope for sport and more broadly is that as a society, we can move toward the depathologization of trans identities. For today's episode, William and I are connecting from Treaty 7 territory and Rain is joining from Treaty 6 territory. Ava connects from the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. We want to acknowledge how fortunate we are for the lands we reside on, but most importantly, for the First Nation peoples who took care of these lands for generations before us. Hi, William and Ava. We are so excited to welcome you to Sporting Change today. Matt and I have really been looking forward to our conversation today, and we know we're going to dive into some really important issues. William, I'm going to kind of put you on the hot seat first. We'd love for you to kind of introduce yourself to our listeners and give them a little bit about your background in education and kind of what 
your different fields of study have been. Uh, thanks so much uh, for having me, Matt uh, and Rain, and I'm super excited to be here with uh, Ava. So I am uh, currently an associate professor and associate dean academic in the Faculty of Kinesiology at the University of Calgary. I've been at the university for about eight and a half years. Very broadly speaking, my teaching and my research is in the area of sociocultural studies of sport, physical activity, and the body. And for the last several years, my primary focus has been around inclusive sport with a particular focus on LGBTQI2S plus inclusion in figure skating, but other sports as well. But the reason uh, that I have personally primarily focused on skating is because that's the sport that I grew up in. I was a competitive figure skater. I think I strapped on skates for the first time when I was four and fell in love with it immediately. But it certainly was not an easy journey because I grew up in the 70s and 80s in a small town in Ontario, which was very hockey focused. And, you know, of course, the narrative is that Canadian boys are supposed to play ice hockey. And I chose not to. So I was bullied uh, quite badly outside the context of skating. And so skating became the sort of complicated thing in my life that I loved so much, but that also was a real source of difficulty. I started coming out as gay when I was 16 within the sport first, and then gradually, you know, family and then other parts of my life. And even that didn't go super well. There was a real culture of silence around sexuality, sexual orientation in figure skating, a real denial about the existence of gay men in the sport. And I would say, you know, from my research, almost a denial still today of, you know, gay, lesbian, and queer women in the sport, even the more have started to come out publicly in Canada and the United States and elsewhere in the last few years, which is amazing. But yeah, so I've, I've really remained passionate about the sport of skating, but also recognized that there was, you know, some real need for change. Had a good opportunity to collaborate with some folks at uh, the National Sport Organization, Skate Canada, and thankfully got some funding from the Social Sciences Humanities Research Council as well for the research. And I think I'm really proud of what we accomplished. We did manage to have some input on rule changes and policy implementation. So the sport looks a little bit different than it did uh, when the research began. Wow. Well, thank you so much, William, for sharing with that and for kind of letting us get to know a little bit of your journey better. And as you were speaking, all these questions are coming to my mind about that work a little bit. And I'll put a little bit of a pin in that for now as I pass things over to Ava to introduce herself to the group as well. Well, my name is Ava Boschniak. My pronouns are they, them, and I am an equity, diversity, and inclusion practitioner working both in the field of sport and in the post-secondary sector. So I met William at the University of Calgary. I did my Bachelor of Science there in kinesiology as well as a Master of Science in sociocultural aspects of sport and physical activity, where William was my supervisor. For my master's degree, I focused on the lived experiences of trans and gender nonconforming persons in the context of recreational sport and physical activity. And so what really drew me to that specific area to do my master's in is because, well, one, I'm a queer, trans, non-binary person, and I was also a huge athlete growing up. My primary sport was soccer, and I have experience playing competitive soccer in both Canada and the U.S., I unfortunately stopped playing soccer when I started university because I knew that I was queer and I did not necessarily feel comfortable in that environment. 
And I constantly kept feeling like people were always looking at me and everyone knew my secret. And so I stopped playing. To this day, I still don't play. And I would say the huge part of that is because I am trans and I'm non-binary and really no team exists that matches my gender. And I am inherently a very competitive person. And so I find that sometimes co-ed recreational leagues where I would be able to play technically, I don't necessarily feel like I would be able to play to the extent that I want to and be able to derive the same enjoyment out of sport that I used to. And so this is really why I became an equity, diversity, and inclusion practitioner, because I really want to help make both sport and just everyday life more inclusive and more accepting of other people where people feel like they can show up and be their authentic selves, because I know what it feels like to not be able to show up as your authentic self. And it sucks. And I really want to be able to change that so we can move forward and that people can feel just more included. Thank you both for sharing what has kind of sparked that fire in you to work in this area. I'll kind of shift the gears that Matt and I had originally laid out here, but what barriers are there right now, Ava, kind of to bounce off or to echo what you said that prevent individuals in sport from being their authentic selves? I would say that the barriers for trans people participating in sport are both written and unwritten. And so when I mean written, I mean kind of ingrained in the policies and procedures of various sport organizations. So a lot of the time in terms of policies, some sporting organizations will have trans inclusion policies, but then they won't necessarily really be inclusive. So the term inclusive is not necessarily an accurate term to describe those policies. A lot of the times they will make trans people prove their gender. They will make trans people prove that they have undergone certain types of hormone therapy, that their hormones, and namely testosterone, are below a specific level. And they will sometimes even force trans people to prove that they have gotten certain surgeries. These policies also oftentimes rarely mention non-binary, gender non-conforming, or gender diverse people. And so that makes it really difficult for those people to participate because one, no one really knows what to do when a non-binary or gender non-conforming person comes and tries to participate in a particular sport in a given organization. And then kind of on the side of unwritten rules that make it difficult for trans people to participate, I would say that overall, it's really just the culture and the way that sport is currently framed right now, kind of within a North American context. So toxic masculinity exists within sport the male athletic superiority exists in sport. And so we've kind of created this hierarchy where we believe that men, and in particular, cis men, are ultimately, at all cis men, are better at sports. They're stronger and they're faster than all cis women. And so that's kind of creates a hierarchy of men's sport is better than women's sport. Anyways, just the overall culture within sport makes it very difficult for trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people to participate because in sport, women are expected to appear feminine, have feminine mannerisms, be heterosexual, etc. And the kind of the same goes for men in terms of being masculine, playing into this culture of toxic masculinity, and again, appearing in a masculine way. And so oftentimes, trans and non-binary people will kind of go beyond the bounds of gender norms. And so that makes it really difficult for them to be included. In terms of kind of other unwritten rules, language is another thing that we use. So a lot of the normative gendered language that we use, like, hey, guys, or come on, ladies, that type of language really isn't inclusive to those who don't identify as women or men and doesn't really take into account, in particular, non-binary people. 
Thanks, Ava. So yeah, just a couple of things to sort of pick up on. One, in terms of trans inclusion policies at the national sport level, Ava is, is very correct, and there are still some very problematic policies in Canada and elsewhere. There are a lot of sport organizations that also don't have any official policy in place. One of the things that I know from, uh, I'm part of a, a fabulous research collective of scholars and practitioners from across Canada, very fortunate to work with. One of the first projects we did together as a collective was to analyze so-called EDI policies within the national sports system. Among the things that we discovered, one of them was that organizations that have trans inclusion policies, and in some cases, very good trans inclusion policies, they're actionable, they rely on self-identification, but the rules then that follow underneath that, so the actual rules that govern the sport, are still very gendered. The best example probably is a sport organization that has a fairly progressive, so-called progressive trans inclusion policy but then has a gender equity policy that is built around the binary ideas of women and men. The other examples uh, that I can give, and this is actually something that we did within Skate Canada, was recognizing that the trans inclusion policy had to trickle down, so to speak, was to make changes to rules that did have gendered language. So we got rid of things like he slash she in the rule book and changed to they. We looked at rules that actually were gendered, that broke categories, say, into boys and girls that didn't need to. We changed the costume rule in skating, which used to be men had to wear something and women had to wear something. It now is just a statement for everybody in domestic events. And a couple other examples in the recreation development stream, definitions of partnerships was changed, where it used to be a partnership for pairs or ice dancing had to be a boy and a girl or a man and a woman. It's now two skaters comprise a partnership. Could you explain a little bit what the difference between gender identity, sexuality, what it means to be trans, like what are all the differences and nuances between those? So when we talk about sexual orientation, we're talking about attraction generally. So attraction to somebody else based on physical attraction, emotional attraction, romantic attraction, intellectual attraction. The identities that we connect with sexual orientation are typically lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, pansexual, sapiosexual, so on and so forth. Sexual orientation is different, but not disconnected from gender identity and gender expression. Gender identity, as William said, is not the same as as sexuality. And gender identity and gender expression are also very different from each other, even though sometimes they do get kind of presented as the same thing. So gender identity is really just someone's internal sense of self and more so their internal sense of gender, whether that be man, woman, non-binary, genderqueer, two-spirit, etc. Whereas gender expression is really just how someone presents themselves. So that can include the way that they have their hair cut, the way their hair is colored, their mannerisms, whether or not they choose to paint their nails, their voice as well. And so I think it's really just important. This point in particular is really important for me to say is that someone's gender expression is not at all indicative of their gender identity. It's not possible to look at someone and know what their gender is, which is why it's really important to allow people to let you know how they identify. That's always really important and we should really never assume anyone's gender. 
I think it's really interesting kind of sport in so many ways has been structured with female rules, male rules, and female teams have to kind of follow these rules or these limitations. And then it's also the same, even on say the men's side, and maybe just to kind of give a couple examples, gymnastics, male athletes compete in completely different or not completely different, but more different apparatuses than female gymnasts do. And then there's a decathlon for men and there's a heptathlon for women. And so in so many ways, our sport culture has created these boxes. And William and Ava, if I'm kind of hearing correctly, lots of your work or your research is around maybe these boxes need to get opened up and kind of flattened and get out of the way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a couple of things I'll try to not go on too long because this is something that I'm super nerdy about, you know, the history sort of of modern sport and this lingering impact of, you know, a space that was literally created for boys and men and a very particular kind of boy and man, like white, middle, upper class, heterosexual. These were not spaces that were created for girls and women. They were not created for queer folks. They were not created for indigenous folks working class folks, racialized folks. And so anybody who isn't a white cisgender straight man has really had to fight to be included in these spaces or create their own spaces, which really was something that came up in Ava's research. One of the challenges that I see is that when we talk about sport and we talk about organizing it differently, we lump all sports together and we lump all levels of sport together. And we think that the way that sport is organized at the international level has to be the way that it's organized for five and six-year-olds. And that certainly is, is not the case. And so to me, I would love to see, and I think it's starting to happen a little bit, shifts in thinking, shifts in policy, shifts in practice happening in grassroots sports and happening in more recreational sports settings rather than relying on the International Olympic Committee, which, let's be honest, is not progressive in any way and never has been, rather than relying on that organization to make change and have it trickle down, let's start making fundamental change at grassroots and recreational levels and then have that trickle up. I think more often than not, we see this top-down approach to changes in sport. And William, you're speaking about Let's totally flip that. Let's change it around. Let's start making those changes at these grassroots community levels. And Ava, I'd love to kind of ask you, what changes have we seen maybe at some of these lower levels? And maybe we haven't seen changes. I mean, I don't know all of the specifics, but from my experiences is that really co-ed or gender integrated sporting environments really only exist when kids are very little. And sometimes around the ages of probably around six to eight, in my experience, is that when that's when we start separating kids into boys teams and girls teams. And I really think that having this happen at such a recreational grassroots level when kids are young, it really just starts to ingrain in their minds that, oh, boys are different from girls and we can't have them work together because girls are going to get hurt. Their bodies are just too fundamentally different to be able to participate with each other grassroots level sport, and especially for kids who are quite young, and I would say under 10, teams are co-ed. But I would say for the large part, they are not. Kids are still separated into boys and girls teams. Really, what I think we need to start doing is not separating kids based on gender or based on perceived gender. This teaches kids that boys and girls are separate, they're distinct and different. 
and that for some reason girls and boys should always be always be separated and sports are not meant to be played together and i think that that's not really a great message to be giving to kids there's really not many major physiological differences between people who have been assigned male at birth and people who have been assigned female at birth at such a young age puberty has not started for most of these people and so there really aren't any physical differences question for Ava when you talked about your journey and how it led to where you are right now you mentioned that as a non-binary person you didn't feel like you fitted in what we just described right the girls women boys men how do we include non-binary people how do they fit the easiest way to include non-binary people within our traditional sporting system is just to allow non-binary people to compete in the category that they feel most aligns with their gender identity or that's most comfortable to them. That would be the first thing that you can do. But I would say that the second thing is education. So even if we are not in a place yet where either at a grassroots level, at a provincial level, or at a national level that we can change the gendered sporting categories that have always existed, that we can at least educate people on inclusive language that we can use. So we can stop. If there's a girls team, we don't necessarily need to refer to everyone on that team as girls. They're just participating in the girls or the women's category. That's not necessarily indicative of the gender that everyone is on that specific team. I think educating people on inclusive language, on what gender identity versus biological sex is, I think that can really help to at least create an inclusive environment for non-binary people and other gender diverse people. I've been reading and it's it's been all over the media right now with uh, Leah Thomas and a trans woman competing in the women's category. A lot of the comments that I've been reading is people are saying it's unfair. And so when you say, and I totally agree, we should just let them choose where they feel more comfortable playing, the feedback you're going to get or the pushback you're going to get, it's, well, it's unfair. What do you say to those people? When we talk about fairness in the context of sport, I think that mainstream media and these large sporting organizations like the International Olympic Committee and international uh, sporting bodies, I really think that when they talk about fairness, they're only talking about fairness for cisgender women and more specifically for white cisgender women. And so if a white cisgender woman is not winning in a particular category and in a particular competition, then automatically questions are raised, people are forced to undergo testing, and sometimes they are outed to the public. Whether or not that an individual is trans or whether or not that individual is someone who has a difference in sex development. And so that's really what I encourage people to think about is what are we really caring about when we talk about fairness? Because if we are concerned with trans women and trans girls participating in sport. Unfortunately, um, actually, it is a positive, but when we talk about trans women or trans girls participating in sport, there's actually not really any conclusive or compelling evidence to show that individuals with higher levels of testosterone or historically have had exposure to higher levels of testosterone, that they have 
an unfair athletic advantage in sport. The research just doesn't support that. It is very interesting. And I find no matter who I talk to in sport, outside sport, there's people are interested in this. It's a topic people want to know more about or to talk about. And I guess potentially, why is this topic so talked about? Or why are there such kind of maybe even polarizing viewpoints on it? Transphobia is really the root uh, of all of this, to be honest. I can come back to that in a second. But I, I also want to say that this is, you know, it's it's a topic that is also useful in a problematic way to think about a lack of critical media education that's happening. And we can see this in, in other areas as well, like COVID-19, for example. We have these media narratives that trans girls and women are dominating sport, uh, you know, and certainly that was the way Leah Thomas was represented in the media. She, you know, is dominating NCAA swimming. It's simply not true. Trans girls and women are not dominating sports. If you ask most folks in Canada if they can name a trans girl or woman who is in our sports system, they cannot. We don't hear the stories in the media about trans girls and women who are finishing fourth, fifth, seventh, eighth, not even qualifying for certain events. We hear when somebody maybe wins or somebody breaks a record, right? And then it becomes this, you know, real... And this is then where it intersects with transphobia. And so people who don't necessarily have a background to understand the complexity of human biology and physiology, and honestly, even those who don't generally care about girls and women's sports until you're talking about trans girls and women participating, just ends up fueling, right? So the comment on media pieces, you know, the Leah Thomas example, there was also um, a powerlifter from New Zealand, Lauren Hubbard, who qualified for the Olympics in Tokyo. The vitriol is awful, inaccurate, and tends to just reproduce this media-driven, and I'll say conservative media-driven narrative that this is something that we should be afraid of and that you know trans folks are taking over and that it's going to ruin opportunities for cisgender girls and women. Do you know who does dominate sport? Like Usain Bolt, Michael Phelps, Connor McDavid. And we don't often have a lot of concerns about them dominating their sport, but we make up this narrative that trans girls and women are dominating their sports, and it's just simply not true. I really think that the media needs to stop presenting this so, like, quote-unquote, issue of trans people participating in sport as a debate. I often find times that mainstream news articles kind of make this seem like a, a neutral debate. Oh, we're going to give equal weight to both sides, like quote unquote, both sides of the story. In reality, there are not kind of two sides of the story. It's just discrimination and people getting hurt versus people being kind of allowed to live as their true authentic selves. And I kind of have a personal experience with that. A little while ago, I was approached by a major news network in Canada, and I was asked to do an interview on trans people in sport. When I got to the interview, I was actually relatively kind of disturbed and disappointed at a lot of the questions that they asked. They were really asking me questions about, do you think trans people should be able to participate in sport? Do you think that trans women and girls pose a threat to other athletes? They were asking questions in such a way that I felt like 
if there was another person kind of sitting in my position that they could have answered in a more negative transphobic way. And that would have been completely fine to the interviewers. And I found that quite upsetting. And so I really think that the media needs to stop taking this very neutral approach to talking about trans people, kind of both in the context of sport, but also kind of more broadly, really, especially in the context of gender affirming healthcare. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it spreads a lot of misinformation because the people that are on the, I guess, on the other end of the story that are debating these trans issues, oftentimes their beliefs are rooted in ignorance and in transphobia. And I think that it's just time that the media stops giving weight to these people's stories because it's just spreading more misinformation and more transphobia. And I think it ultimately makes the problem worse. Yeah, thanks for sharing this story. Even for me, doing my research coming into this podcast, this interview, the questions that you're referring to, the information that you're referring to is what I was seeing everywhere. And then I was trying to word my own questions in what I heard and what I seen to get the real answers. But I would come in here and I wouldn't want to offend any of you, but I would ask those questions and being like, oh, well, it's going to be up to them to defend their point of view when you should never have to defend anything. And to your point, it's we need to educate ourselves differently not to ask those questions and not to take that neutral stance. And your story, I'm like, I'm sorry that happened and I never realized how it could be offensive either. It's one thing to, I think, make a mistake when answering a question, but it's what kind of I find that bugs me the most about the media is that it's happening everywhere across the board and no one seems to identify it. Or if people do want to support trans people, they're afraid to, which I think kind of ties into the concept of accompliceship, which I'll talk a little bit about later. So someone like me now, I'm like, okay, well, I feel like maybe I've been misinformed on a lot of these things. Where can I go to better inform myself on what is actually the reality of trans athletes in sports? Are there kind of really good resources I can look into or some good studies or case studies, things like that? Yeah, I think the first, you know, for Canadian folks listening to this, I would recommend going to a website, sportinclusion.ca. It's the website of a group called the LGBTQI2S Plus Sport Inclusion Task Force. What we've done, uh, I'm I'm co-founder and member of, of the SITF, We um, created this website as a sort of one-stop shop for resources that exist in the Canadian context and also globally to help folks who are struggling with some of these questions, thinking about making changes to policies and programs. So that, to me, is like a hub of information. There's also people involved in that organization and others like Canadian Women in Sport, Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sport, who have done really, really good work around education and policy in relation to trans inclusion and inclusion of non-binary folks, but also homophobia in sport. And then there are folks like AVA and an organization they work with called Inclusion Incorporated, who this is the work that they do. So people don't need to do this on their own. There are resources out there that are created out of research that's done within 
academia and within by advocacy and activist groups. I agree with all the points that William made in terms of all of the different organizations that you can go to in terms of resources to understand trans inclusion in sport and to understand uh, the reality of what the research actually says and what the experiences of trans and non-binary people are who are competing in sport. But I see with the media, these articles are coming out about trans people in sport, but also more broadly, it's almost becoming rampant at this point in time. And especially over the past year, these article after article are coming out about trans people. And so sometimes research doesn't necessarily keep up with the pace that these articles are essentially being spit out at. I would really encourage people to look at writing and at news articles by queer and trans people. Those people will be able to tell you how they feel about these issues because the media is talking about people like them, about queer and trans people like them. And so I think it's really important to get the perspective of people who also have those identities and those lived experiences and those people who can relate. And that I think will help give you a better understanding of what's actually happening. Because I think a lot of the time trans people are talked about in a very pathologizing way. And we really just tend to focus on trans people's bodies and what they can and cannot do and what they should and should not do. And so I think we sometimes just need to take a step back and think about trans and non-binary people as actual people that are affected by the media and by these incredibly toxic and damaging and hateful and transphobic stories and narratives that are being perpetuated. and just really maybe learn to gain some empathy. And I think that education and taking some time to educate yourself and especially educate yourself from people who are queer and trans and non-binary, I think that'll really help people maybe gain a bit of a better understanding and potentially be a little bit more empathetic and have them maybe think a little bit when the next time they are asked to potentially debate whether or not trans people should be allowed to compete in sport. Just building on on Ava's comment there, I think one thing that I didn't mention and is social media, like following exactly what Ava just said, following trans and non-binary folks on your socials is a great way to gain insights into their experiences. It's not always going to be about participation in sports, but that's, I think, really important because their socials humanize these folks, which the media generally is not doing. Ava, I kind of want to track back and kind of give you the platform again. So I remember you mentioned there's no way we can guess someone's gender identity just by looking at them. And you mentioned you have to ask. I want to get to like the pronouns. It's another big topic right now. Can you kind of explain why it's so important and how to go about declaring your pronouns? Yeah, that's a great question. I think to start off, I'll just maybe briefly explain what a pronoun is for maybe listeners who aren't familiar. A pronoun is essentially a word that is used in place of a noun. So oftentimes when we think of gender and pronouns, we think of the pronouns she, her, he, him, they, them, zizer. Obviously, you can ask people what their pronouns are, but I would say the first thing that you can do is start to create a safer environment so that other people also feel comfortable to share their pronouns. So when you introduce yourself, you can also share your pronouns. So for example, when I go to give a presentation to a group of people, I introduce myself, I say, hi, 
My name is Ava. My pronouns are they, them. And then I kind of continue on with the presentation. And so then if other people in that room or in that meeting are also introducing themselves, they can then feel comfortable to share their name, but also their pronouns in addition to that. And so that will then kind of ensure that other people are going to not assume their pronouns because most of the time that is the default. And so in addition to kind of sharing your, your pronouns when you meet someone or in a meeting, you can also put your pronouns in your email signature and on your name tag if you work in a particular workplace that allows for something like that. Really, at the end of the day, if you don't know someone's pronouns, you can ask them. If someone doesn't want to share their pronouns with you, don't necessarily feel bad about that. They're not required to share that information with you. And so those are kind of just the two main tips that I would give in terms of pronouns. While it may seem awkward at first, I would just recommend to push through it and just keep doing it over and over again. Some people may react strangely, but that's on them. You're not responsible for how other people react. I would just encourage people to push through that discomfort and really just to practice. But also if, for example, you do introduce yourself to someone new and you forget to share your pronouns and they don't then share their pronouns back with you, if you're talking about that person later on to someone else and you still don't know their pronouns, I would really just recommend using the pronouns they, them, just because they, them does not necessarily refer to any particular gender and they're typically seen as non-gendered pronouns. So that's something that I would do kind of in the meantime, if you don't know a person's pronouns. We used to say preferred pronouns. Why don't we do that anymore? Preferred pronouns makes it seem like someone's pronouns are a choice and that while they would prefer you to use she, her, you could also technically use he, him pronouns. So that's kind of what it suggests. Whereas pronouns are not a preference, they are just someone's pronouns and you need to use the pronouns that someone tells you to. So at my work, we are working with youth and we are always on meetings and interacting. And so we made it not technically mandatory, but pretty much mandatory to have your pronouns on your Zoom, Matt, he, him, right? To create that safe environment. I know, and I'll, I'll give an example, it might sound silly, but if you were to say to me, Matt, you have to write your name and then in brackets next to it, just declare your sexuality, put gay. Because I think, and I might be wrong, is figuring out your gender identity can be the same way as figuring out your sexuality. It can be hard for people to get to that point. So forcing someone to identify their pronouns can have a bigger meaning. I don't think it should ever be mandatory for people to share their pronouns because um, trans and non-binary people may not necessarily know what their pronouns are, or even cis people may not know what their pronouns are and so yet, and they haven't figured kind of what is comfortable to them. And so you should never be putting people in a space or an environment where they feel like they have to share something that they are not yet comfortable with. So it should always be optional, but kind of with the caveat that you educate people and workplaces really need to do a better job at educating people why it's important for especially cis individuals to share their pronouns and how that can help create spaces for people who are trans and non-binary and gender diverse. And kind of the second part, I would say that pronouns do not necessarily indicate a person's gender. Sometimes they can. Sometimes someone can use the pronouns she, her, and also be a woman. But sometimes that's not necessarily the case. I've heard of many non-binary people who use he, him, or she, her pronouns. And so I would say that 
having someone share their pronouns, or if you see someone's pronouns, that's not necessarily reflective of what that person's gender is. So again, I kind of, I'll go back to my earlier point is that never assume someone's, someone's gender. In addition to gender expression, pronouns are also not indicative of a person's gender identity. William, I'll ask this question kind of to you. I know we're, we're talking a lot about gender right now. In some ways, and of course, I'm not nearly as informed in this area as the both of you, William and Ava, but sometimes to me, gender seems so much of a social construct. Girls like pink, boys like blue. That's not true at all. That's just what society tells us. Even the kind of construct of being a tomboy is rooted in gender stereotypes. William, how does society and kind of some of these stereotypes or some of these right from the second a baby is born, these kind of things that are constantly pushed at them or presented to them, create this construct of gender in society? I mean, you sort of addressed it there. I mean, there's a number of different social institutions, systems and processes that just, you know, help produce and reproduce these ideas over and over again. And so we do argue exactly as you've said, that gender is a social construct that we learn from, I mean, in some cases, maybe even before we're born. There's some research that people talk to the fetus in different ways if they know if it's a girl or, or a boy. What you want to do with that information is really up to you. But we, you know, for sure, we paint rooms pink, we buy certain toys. We might expose girls to different television programming. They learn from role models. You know, we encourage certain behaviors in girls that we don't in boys and vice versa. Yeah, is it starting to shift? I think. I think things are way less rigid than they used to be. You know, and because gender is a social construct, that means it's malleable, right? It's open to change, to contest. And so the best example, just building from, you know, the one you gave, Rain is that, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, prior to the 40s, 50s, that's when it started to shift. Pink was considered a boy's color and blue was considered a girl's color. Pink was considered a very strong. Um, and so the meaning of things change, right? They change over time. They change within cultural context. You know, the way that we in sort of the global north or even more specifically within, you know, Canada might think about masculinity and femininity in different ways than other cultures do. You know, and certainly we can talk about colonialism and its impact on gender. You know, indigenous, many indigenous communities had terminology for multiple gender identities that changed once settlers came and enforced their sort of religious beliefs. So I'm meandering a little bit, but like religion, education, the family, sport, uh, the healthcare system. I mean, there was all of these systems that you know work to reproduce these you know constructed ideas about gender but just because something is socially constructed doesn't mean it doesn't have very real impact on people's lived experiences So Ava, I have a question. I think it's great that a lot of clubs are now starting to ask athletes their pronouns and registration. That's such a great action for clubs to do. And if that's something your club doesn't do, I would totally encourage people to consider it. 
Or maybe perhaps clubs are even going in and revising their code of conduct to be more inclusive with the language. These are great steps. But my question to you is, sometimes it's great when a club makes these first steps, but then perhaps throughout the season, some of their policies at their club or their actions or different things that come up through the season maybe don't fall in line with respecting those pronouns or that information that someone gives. So what advice do you kind of give if you're going to ask someone your pronouns to make sure that you're respecting it and then carrying out that action? If sporting organizations are asking someone for their pronouns, they first need to make sure that all of their policies are reflective of that kind of in terms of using inclusive language and and kind of things like that. Again, you talked about kind of the code of conduct and revising that. But I think, again, as we mentioned several times for this podcast, is education. So their policies also need to very clearly outline who is receiving education kind of in terms of gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, kind of broad range, equity, diversity, and inclusion training. Who is receiving that training? Um, In particular, our senior people in positions of power, like coaches and, and trainers and managers, are they receiving that training? how often they're receiving that training, who is going to be presenting that training. That is one really key component. But I would also really encourage organizations to also kind of look at their harassment and discrimination policies, as well as their disciplinary policies. Because if their disciplinary policies do not outline transphobia, which misgendering someone is a form of transphobia, if they do not include that as um, an act that can result in someone receiving a disciplinary measure, there's really no follow through there. People are not going to be held accountable. So you really need, organizations really need to make sure that accountability is carried across all of their policies and that the appropriate disciplinary measures are kind of carried out. And especially if people are repeatedly saying things that are transphobic or misgendering athletes or other staff members on purpose, things like that. And so accountability kind of really is the key. Yeah, thanks. And maybe as you were talking, it kind of reminded me of something that I had recently read as well as we think about, okay, how important it is to make sure we're asking our athletes registering and programs their pronouns. I think something that maybe we then kind of forget is we should avoid asking mother's name, father's name. You're assuming that that's the makeup of their parents, guardian one, guardian two. It's another kind of simple shift that takes no time on a registration to adjust. I had read that and you sparked my mind about that. And I really wanted to quickly add in that that little tidbit that I had picked up through some reading as well. If I can just quickly add something to about sort of the sort of day-to-day environment that individuals can, you know, help to reinforce the importance of pronouns and creating a space that's safe for all genders is to make sure when you're addressing a group, for example, that you're using inclusive terminology like everyone, y'all folks because a lot of the time the fallback is hey guys what's uh, what's going on today how are you doing guys you are potentially alienating a lot of people when you rely on that as your sort of go-to universal word and people argue me about this all the time and they're like guys is gender neutral you know there's even a book that's written about how like guys became the sort of gender neutral term And the two things that I'll say, the one is a bit more of an academic response, I suppose, is that why is it when we have a universal term that it always is the masculine version of something? Because it's guys and gals, right? And so guys became the universal to encompass everybody. 
And so then you connect that to, you know, patriarchy and patriarchal norms, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe the less academic response that I'll use to people is like, if guys is truly gender neutral, ask a heterosexual man how many guys he has slept with, and it automatically becomes not gender neutral. I like that answer. <laughs> I know Rain and I have mentioned that doing this episode with you for us has been so exciting, but also stressful. Not really stressful, but we were afraid to say the wrong things. We were afraid to make mistakes. We know that to bring on change and to educate ourselves, we have to be vulnerable. We have to make those mistakes. I have made those mistakes today in previous conversations I had with you or with other people. It's kind of like twofold, I guess, for a cisgender. If I see someone making a mistake, how do I react? to that mistake. And for someone that is non-binary, someone uh, uses the wrong pronouns. How do you react when there's mistakes? How do you help people learn when they're making mistakes? How do you help people that are nervous about asking those questions? How do you make them ask the right questions, seek out the right information? How do we help this situation? I can kind of start off with kind of the first part of your question. In terms of if you are a bystander and you see someone kind of perpetuating a transphobic microaggression, then you kind of just need to call that person out and kind of hold them accountable. You can ask them questions like, why did you say that? Why do you think that? Start asking that person probing questions. You don't necessarily need to do it on the spot, but you can go and talk to that person at a later time, potentially just so you're not necessarily making the individual who that comment was directed to uncomfortable. And also, if you're in a situation where one person misgenders another person, really all you have to say is, hey, their pronouns are they, them, and then kind of just move on. You don't really need to make any sort of big deal about it. I mean, I spend a lot of my time researching and teaching in this area, and I make mistakes. And so when you do, the important thing is to apologize, and it is a quick apology, and move on and do better. What we see often is that folks will enter into this apology that all of a sudden then it makes it about themselves, right? So rather than, oh, I'm so sorry, and then moving on, they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. It's just, it's so hard and it's so complicated. And that really just makes it worse because you've then shifted, you know, the focus from who it should be on. So quick apology. Now, if I step outside of that and into sort of like my, you know, educational educator role, Yes, people are going to make mistakes. And to me, and Matt, you're going to roll your eyes, I'm sure, because you've heard me say this a million times, we learn the most in places of discomfort, right? As my good colleague and friend, Dr. Carrie Din says all the time, we need to get into the pit and we need to get uncomfortable. And that's where we learn. My approach is always to call people in first. So you do it in a gentle way, in an educational way, assuming the best of people. At some point, sometimes you need to decide this is not about them being open to being educated. They're just looking for some kind of debate. They have a point of view. They're not in a place that they want to get uncomfortable. They're not looking to move forward. That hasn't been my experience a lot in terms of some of the work that I've done with sport organizations. I think people genuinely want to do better, but certainly we all know folks who are stuck and set and that's that and just want to debate you then from a sort of self-care and self-wellness standpoint you need to step away
podcast question we always conclude with is listeners who turn this podcast off and move on with their day or at the end of this podcast, what can our listeners leave saying, this is something I should start doing. This is something I should stop doing. And this is something I need to continue to do to better support trans and queer athletes in sport. And maybe Ava, I'll kind of ask you that question specifically in a recreational grassroots introductory kind of perspective. And maybe William, you can then answer from looking more at some of these high performance areas, how we can start, stop and continue to better support this community. I think kind of at grassroots level, when people do say that, oh, I don't care who participates, people should be able to participate in whatever category they want, or gender categories shouldn't exist anymore. I think we need to really take a closer look at what that means. Sometimes people will say, I don't care who participates, but then won't really put in the work to understanding gender identity and won't really put in the work to understanding, especially trans and gender diverse people for who they really are. And so I think that as a statement is not always necessarily a good thing. And I would really encourage people to kind of, again, get into that area of discomfort. If you don't really understand gender or you don't really understand what it means to be non-binary, take some time to learn that. And kind of, if you're uncomfortable with any of those concepts, take some time to really just sit in it and think about why you may be uncomfortable and just take some time to learn. Because I just find that oftentimes people will say that they don't care about who someone is or who people love or what race someone is, but then they really won't go in and start to understand what those people's lived experiences are. And then I think that makes it really difficult for people to be empathetic towards one another. So really just within sport, I think we need to be putting more of an emphasis on education, kind of both at the organization level. So grassroots levels, grassroots sport organizations can create educational materials. They can hire external equity, diversity, inclusion consultants to come in and tell them kind of what to do. Um, But there's also so many free resources out there and they can utilize those resources and create educational programming for their staff, for their volunteers, for parents and guardians, and also for youth. I think that's really something that organizations can start doing. And then kind of for kids, and maybe this is a little bit more for people who are preteens or teens, is that I think that these individuals uh, and maybe even young adults, people just really need to take some time to really learn more about gender and gender identity, because you may understand that someone is non-binary, but you really may not know what that means. And so if you find yourself misgendering someone all the time, I think we need to maybe just take some time to think about why that's happening. Perhaps we're not viewing this individual as the gender that they are. And so I really think that digging in and again, sitting with that discomfort and just really taking time to learn, because I think that Nothing is really going to change if we're not willing to educate. But I would say that the main thing that really kind of organizations can do, but also people can really start doing at the individual level, like even today, and this is something that William and I have talked about, is start learning how to be an accomplice to trans and non-binary people. So we oftentimes talk about this concept of allyship, which generally would just means if someone says something discriminatory or or is harassing someone, you call them out on it, tell them, hey, stop, don't do that anymore. And kind of just more so stepping in as a bystander. Being an accomplice is really kind of getting down. And as Williams mentioned earlier, getting into the pit with trans and non-binary people who have been experiencing discrimination, who have been 
very intentionally excluded from sport and physical activity environments and really get to understand their experiences and kind of where they're coming from and just be really willing to kind of put yourself on the line. So step one, I would encourage people to think about the privileges that they hold. We all have different privileges and we all experience privilege in different ways. It's not necessarily a bad thing and we can't get rid of the privilege that we have. But what really matters is what we do with it. And so once you've kind of taken a look at your privilege and see where you stand, I think that you really need to be able to use that privilege for good. So if trans and non-binary people are being systematically excluded from a particular sport organization that you are involved with, you need to be willing to stand with those people, even if you are an athlete and that might potentially cause you to lose your captain position on your team or lose your position on the starting lineup when you're playing games. You have to be willing to do that or nothing is going to change. And so people really need to be willing to kind of put themselves on the line because they have the privilege to be able to do that because maybe something bad won't happen to them. Odds are that something bad will happen to that trans or non-binary person. And so you really just have to be willing to kind of put yourself out there and be willing to risk it. That's really what I would say. That was so powerful. Yeah. And William, if we can kind of ask you that same question about what we can all start, stop and continue for our non-binary and trans individuals that are in athletics. I'll start with the continue. And I'll say people need to continue being passionate about the sports that they're involved in. There's a reason, Rain and Matt, you are involved in the sport the way that you are and that you're doing this podcast. There's a reason why the folks who come to some of the workshops that I've done are in the room. It's because they're passionate, right? As whether they're coaches, whether they're officials, whether they're sport leaders, they're passionate. Continue, continue to be passionate about your sport. Absolutely. I think, you know, sometimes students in my classes look at me and go, ah, why are you doing a sport? You hate it so much. And I don't. I hate that sport isn't living up to its potential in terms of creating community, in terms of doing the social justice kind of work that I think that it can do. I think similar to Ava's point, they need to stop denying that inequity exists. Inequity is a fact. We know this from quantitative research, from qualitative research. We know it from stories that folks from equity-denied groups have been telling us for decades and decades. So people need to stop denying that inequity exists and accept that as a fact. And then start, I had written down immediately, they need to start being accomplices, being brave. I would say the work that's happened to make changes within sort of quote-unquote elite sport, in the same way that it falls on the shoulders of members of equity-denied groups, that same thing is true of any kind of social change, right? The civil rights movement, women's rights movements, uh, sexual liberation, HIV and AIDS activism. People from equity denied groups have been doing this hard, emotional and physical and intellectual labor for a long time. And in sport, for trans and non-binary folks, for example, and here I'm going to reference a terrific doctoral dissertation that I got to read by Mustafa Karasam at the University of Calgary. We have a long history of trans rights sport activists in Canada, people like Veronica Ivey, Kristen Worley, and Michelle Dumaresque. But it's up to cisgender folks to be accomplices for trans and non-binary folks, like Ava spoke about. Put themselves on the line and be brave. 
because the work to make change within a social institution like sport is exhausting for members of equity denied groups. Wow. Well, both William and Ava, you just had some mic drop moments and we won't try to top those. And Matt and I are so grateful to have you on the podcast and that we were able to have this conversation and share some hard truths, share some moments that have been unfair in the past and to kind of look at some of these really important pieces. So Matt and I are very grateful that we could join with you today on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm not going to say anything because I'm getting emotional. (laughs) I don't want to cry, but thank you so much. Vulnerability is strength. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be a part of the movement to sport change by sharing this episode. Check out our podcast notes for additional resources and to stay connected with our guests. This podcast was funded by Chancey Jeunesse and Rising Youth. If you or someone you know wants to make an impact in your community through a social entrepreneurship project, visit their website for more information.